Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And as a reminder, Act 2 is a network <laughs> support group <laughs> for the everyday working screenwriter, of which this podcast is just one of our many initiatives. So thank you for joining us here. And do join us here because this is where we're going to start talking about our post-pandemic, if we can call this era the post-pandemic, different events that we're doing that are open to the public, not just for Act 2 writers. So wait, this is where you you're talking about a pandemic. Stuff. Don't even bring that up anymore. We're out of that. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even bring that into the world. I just want to clarify that this is why we haven't done it before. There's there's oh. a there's a dividing line. Okay. We are past it now. If you'd rather DM us questions, topic suggestions, please send us more topics. We'd love to hear what you're struggling with or what you have questions about. Even if you think it's dumb, there is no dumb question in this business. That's pretty much why this podcast exists. Um, I actually remember, small tangent at the intro of mm -hmm. our podcast, I started a new job once and one of the EPs was like, oh, you do a podcast. I said, yeah, I do a screenwriting podcast. He's like, great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check one out tonight. And I got so nervous, I was like, oh no, what is he gonna think of our podcast? Do we sound like morons? And he decided to listen to the episode where we talked about dashes oh, <laughs> in, in screenwriting, in like, like when do you use dashes and when do you not use dashes? Like, we, we did a whole topic about it, which, to be fair, people have emailed me and been like, I loved that episode. It was really helpful. But this guy, as an EP, was like, what the fuck are they talking about all this waste of a life podcast? And he's never listened to another episode since. So, you know, we talk about the important stuff here. You know what? I had someone listen to it and told me, re re I forgot we did an episode on completely organizing your scripts. Oh, yeah, organizing your files and documents. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's important to us. But the person email you like, this was great? Or was he like, what the fuck? It was kind of like a no comment. It was like, oh, I, <laughs> I heard the one on organization. I feel like I've heard people come to us and say, thank you for the organization one. That was really interesting because I don't do it that way. And that would help me. Hmm. You guys, we need your help. Send us topic suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> there are 52 weeks in a year. We need some help. Yeah, we don't take breaks. So do that. Email us. Say hi. Send us questions, topic suggestions at act2writers at gmail, all spelled out, or on our Instagram, Twitter, and threads at act2writers. I'm yeah. there too. I'm Story Thursday on Instagram and threads. And if we're still on Twitter, I am Tasha 3.0. Wow. I'm Josh Hallman on uh, Instagram, Joshua Hallman on Twitter. I'm not sold on threads yet. It's got some 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 ironing out to do. Yeah. But let's let's hope and pray. All right, we have a lot to get into, so I'm we're just gonna jump into it if that's okay, Josh. We have we have a lot. And it's an awesome I'm like you now. I'm like, this is the best topic we've ever had. <laughs> this <laughs> actually <laughs> might be the best topic we've ever had. <laughs> All right, but let's start with this week in writing. We can write in. This is a really boring, mundane one to, to, to really go with our opener here. But I just keep forgetting to talk about this. So 
a while ago, we talked about sort of ways to get into the industry on the ground level, like the assistant level, and we talked about entertainmentcareers.net and all that stuff. And I forgot to talk about one key way that I actually broke into the industry as an assistant in my early days, and I just wanted to mention it, give a shout out to Tempwork here in Los Angeles. When I first moved to LA, I worked a lot of different jobs, and one thing I did was work at a temp agency, and Apple One was kind of the big one for me. I think I did two at a time, and I forget what the other one was, but I don't think it exists anymore because I did a quick Google search of entertainment temp agencies in Los Angeles. And this, the one that, the second one I did did not pop up, but Apple One is still out there. And the reason you sign up with an entertainment specific temp agency <laughs> in Los Angeles, what? It sounds like like an ad or something. Like I know, the way you're well, reading this. It kind this. of is. It kind of is. Are we sponsored? Because <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> we need to get, well, I mean, we should. Um, is that occasionally, not always, but occasionally, they have openings in the entertainment industry, right? So I got a temp job as an assistant at a construction company. That was one of my jobs. But then I also became a temp as a receptionist at Titmouse Animation Studios when they were kind of just starting out. They were really small, which is cool because it's full circle because Titmouse is now doing Mighty Nine and Vox Machina, which I'm working on. Boom. So, but it's not uncommon to, if you stick it out at these temp agencies that are in inter- that have entertainment specific jobs, that they'll be like, hey, there is a temp job as an assistant or a receptionist at a production company or even a studio. Um, and when I started at Universal as an assistant, technically I actually had to start as a temp working for one of these temp agencies. Um, I didn't go through the temp agency to get the job, technically. I interviewed with the universal exec I was going to work with, but then I was hired through the temp agency for a year. It's like a a temp temp to full-time situation there. But it was definitely not unheard of for assistants to get a full-time job from their temp job because their boss just loved them so much. So it happens. It's a path. I just wanted to mention it as of this week in writing because I kept forgetting it. I love it. We forget about this stuff, like how, because people talk about like, how do you get in? What, what's the path? And I think a lot of people, writers, you just want to post a script on somewhere and just try to have a, a career writing. But if you're coming out to Los Angeles and you kind of need to work your way around, that's, yeah. that's a great way to do it. It's a super great path. All right. My next this week in writing is that I saw Elemental. Let's go. I would like to hear your thoughts about Elemental, Joshua. I actually read something about Elemental. And you're actually reminding me right now that Elemental is the first movie in like the last or first animated movie in the last five years to cross a hundred million dollars. Yeah. First original animated, meaning not a sequel and not like uh, into the Spider Verse. Not Frozen Two. Or uh, yeah. And oh, Spider Verse Two. Oh. But uh, it has been picking up steam. When it first came out, it wasn't doing great. Now, like week by week, it's kind of gaining momentum and it's starting to make a lot of money, which is really crazy to me. Yeah. Word of mouth, I think, is getting around. Listen, it's Pixar, so you kind of go in with like the highest standards, you know? I think yeah. you and I still probably hold Pixar to that like top standard. May I don't mm-hmm. it'd be curious to see if other people do, but um I liked it. I didn't I wasn't like head over heels in love with it. Mm-hmm. Felt like there were a couple different like themes, a couple different messages that were kind of intertwining, but uh overall, I mean, listen, as a father watching with his daughter, I was like, this is great. We loved it. And, and but then when you, you just kind of like really breaking it down, I was like, yeah, okay, this is, this is good. I remember you texting me about that, that your feeling was that like it was about several different things. Can not to get into interview mode, but can you talk about that? <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I felt like there was the father daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. I, there was, there was the story of 
you know, them being mistreated, like the family being mistreated. It was a story of them coming into this town and kind of building a life for themselves. And then there was the love story. Mm-hmm. And I actually think they did a great job of converging. But for me, I can't really pinpoint it. I'm probably going to have to see it again. But there was something there that I just felt like there was one thing too many. Like you weren't sure what you were supposed to emotionally attach to and follow. That's a good way to put it. And like invest yes. in. Because you're right. Like I thought we were watching a movie about a young woman finding the, I guess, self-confidence and the self-composure to be able to run her father's store yes. and take over the mantle for her father. Because we were given all the indication that that's what she wants in her life, but she's not succeeding at it. And then enter Wade who is awesome, her her love interest. And then she surprises us all by saying that she doesn't actually want to work at the store, which we've given we've been given no indication of that previously. So that was I was like, "Oh, that's is that a good surprise or a bad surprise because it comes out of nowhere and it it was a little confusing." Mm-hmm. And then it becomes about their I don't even know, like their, I guess their love story and about her temper and about him being like you need to speak through your anger rather than just exploding with anger use your words yeah is kind of what the middle part of the movie is and then the last part is i don't i mean i guess the combination of those things yeah that's yeah she's able to tell her father i don't want this and control her anger i mean and then they there's a whole like saving set piece where we have to save everyone in our in our village which was a little strange right or our neighborhood yeah, there was just a bunch of elements that were kind of taking hey. place, <laughs> but I still liked it. I liked it too. I cried so many times in that movie because Pixar. What was like the first time you cried? I think the first time I cried was when, and I can't remember wh- which of these came first, but when she tells the story of her father leaving and like, how do you repay a debt that big yeah. for your parents who have sacrificed so much for you to have a better life. Like I'm willing to sacrifice myself so that they get what they want is what she says. And uh, like I wept. And then there's a moment where they're playing the crying game with each other, which I thought was very funny that like the water family cries a lot. And he sort of gets to the core of who she is in that moment, I guess of like, I kind of forget what the, what the dialogue is exactly, but like what you're actually afraid of and why you're so beautiful and amazing. And she starts crying and she's like, I've never cried before in my life. You're never going to get me to cry. And then she starts crying and I start crying. Yeah. I liked and it. And then just like all the, all the stuff of their love story I thought was beautiful. It reminded me of me and Paul in some ways. So I was like, Oh, oh yeah, this is beautiful. <laughs> just, just two people from opposite sides of the track coming together. <laughs> Defying all odds. Yeah, Yeah, there was that story of her coming into her own, dealing with her anger. And usually Pixar does a really good job of being like really weaving all these things together. But yeah, there was just something there that just felt a little disconnected to me. Still great. Still liked it. I can feel it. Yeah. 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 So that's. that's, (sighs) Maybe this is a future breakdown. I think it should be actually. Especially because I think it's gaining some legs and now more people are seeing it. It'll be a good thing to talk about. When it comes out on streaming, we should we should break it down. Yeah. And I should say, I think this is interesting. I had no interest in seeing it after the trailer. It, it seemed like the, the trailer was, was poor. It just made it seem like a very cliche, everyday cartoon movie, which we know Pixar is none of those things. But then everyone kept saying it's a story about immigration. And I was like, oh, 
that makes me really interested in seeing this now. And that I think just as a writer, I think that's an interesting thing that your theme ultimately (laughs) is the thing that makes people want to go see a movie. Even like I'm always drawn to Pixar. Like you say, I think they're the pinnacle of storytelling usually. And yet I wasn't going to go see this movie. But as soon as I I realized there was a really great theme here, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm in. Let me let me give this a shot. Uh, I agree. Okay, on to more sober things. Newsies segment. Ooh, Newsies are back. All right, we came out of we came out of retirement with Newsies <laughs> to to bring you the SAG AFTRA strike. Josh, as a SAG member, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> 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 and your wife's a casting director, so this is definitely in the family. It's in the family. This sucks. I wish this all gets resolved quickly. SAG WGA stuff. And that would be the uh, big picture thoughts. <laughs> well, I so I was I was with a bunch of writers yesterday when this all the news started breaking really. And Fran Drescher, who's the the head of the president of the the SAG after union, she went up and she gave this fiery speech that some people feel like wasn't fiery. Some people feel like it felt rehearsed and like it was acting. Some people were like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready to hit the line and blow things up. So that's interesting as well. (laughs) Actors, am I right? It's all that we could talk about, right? Like it was like tweets that were coming out. It was what is Deadline saying about it? There's a, a thing that came out that was horrifying that one of the things that the AMPTP was fighting for was that they could basically create AI versions of background actors, pay them for one day to like scan their bodies essentially, and then use them forever for the rest of their lives, having only paid them their $200 a day or whatever it is for a background actor. So it's these kind of really existential crazy questions that are on the table. And I'm really proud of them for striking because they haven't struck since, I believe it was 1980. We haven't struck together. Oh, no, I think it's been 1960. That's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, there was a, a man in the, the the press conference who had said that about AI, and I think that was the big talking point. That was the sticking point. Mm-hmm. However, I looked at the producer's offer. Go on. I was curious. So this is maybe... This is where I get really frustrated with all of this because there's no clarity, and I want there to right. be some clarity. It says... Groundbreaking AI proposal, which protects performers' digital likeness, including a requirement for performers' consent for the creation and use of digital replicas or for digital alterations of performance. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound like it kind of contradicts about the background actor? No. No? Because the background actor thing is saying you consent to working for a day for $200 and to us using your image for the rest of our life. But someone who needs that $200 will be forced to do that because that's they need that $200 that week or they're not making their rent, right? So it puts the people at the bottom, I think, in real jeopardy because they also have no choice. Like if the AMPTP is like, oh, I have background actor Josh and background actor Tasha and background actor Josh is willing to scan himself and use his image in perpetuity and background actor Tasha is not, then I'm not going to use background actor Tasha. I'm going to find someone else who's like Josh 2.0 who will be willing to do this because eh, it's an option. And I don't think it should be an option. Yeah. I'm actually, weirdly, as we've been talking about this and processing it, I am not as worried about AI as I was when we first started talking about AI. 
I love that about you. I, I feel a little bit more uh, secure. And, 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 and to be quite honest, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You know, we're good. We're good. But like if there's like this monumental shift in AI where it becomes this self-sufficient, sentient being that can do certain things, we've got bigger issues than like Hollywood. Being unemployed? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, I, I yeah. but in terms of Hollywood... I feel a little bit better just after talking to people. I, I feel like, I, I don't know. I just feel a little more optimistic about the AI thing. I'm glad. All right, moving on to one other thing before we get to our main topic. We are, I'm saying it right now, right here, so that we will do it. We're starting a Patreon, mm. ladies and gentlemen. It's happening. It is happening. We are building tiers right now. We are figuring out what you guys might want as extra things, um, what we can handle within our schedules. And we are putting this together so we will have basically um, extra content options coming up here soon for all of y'all. Yeah. And again, if you have anything you're, you know, any burning desires, and now's the time to speak or forever hold your peace, send us an email at twowriters at gmail.com. If there's anything you want us to consider adding to a Patreon tier, we will have a few for everyone yeah and and i think it will be fun it will be challenging but it will be it'll be fun yeah i'm excited about it once we get it going it's gonna it's gonna get going it's gonna get going we're gonna have really cool extra topics and sort of extra credit stuff basically going on business is out of the way we're getting into the real meat we are talking about jj abrams famous infamous mystery box ted talk so good. All right. Set up for those of you who don't know what this is. J.J. Abrams gave a TED Talk in 2007, which freaked me out because I didn't realize it was this long ago. Me too. 2007. At that point, he had done all sorts of things, including Alias Lost and Mission Impossible 3. And he was told to come on stage and talk about something profound. And the story he then tells <laughs> says that I, he had no idea what to talk about. And then he was in his office stressing about it when he looked over and saw the Tannins mystery box that he always keeps in his office. And he thought, hey, I'll talk about that and why I have it. And thus this legendary TED Talk for writers was born. And this talk has fundamentally changed Josh's life. So before (laughs) we get into specifics and break down exactly what JJ said in his talk, tell us why it changed your life, Joshua. Well, well, well. The old mystery box. When this topic was brought up, you were like, let's talk about the mystery box. I just figured everyone knew about the mystery box. I thought it was a little played out. I did too. Only to learn that some people don't know about the JJ mystery box. Yeah. Which is really surprising to me. I feel like the mystery box TED Talk, I'm a huge JJ guy. I'm a big bad bad robot guy. And I feel like the TED Talk kind of happened at a period where I was writing things that that like that it clicked to me the mis- like oh mm-hmm. present with mystery and there was something that was so pure about his ted talk to me at least i know mm-hmm. we're going to get into some pushback and I, I, it like the mystery box peaked and then all of a sudden like everything people had to fucking tear it down mm. i'm excited to talk about that at the end yeah because i'm not a familiar with people who have torn it down oh, oh really no, not oh my at all. God. I, I still thought it was on a pedestal. So, I mean, not to get too far ahead, but for me it was 
this idea of always creating mystery and uh, within your script and within your scenes, just more questions, questions, questions. Of course, you have to kind of answer those questions as the script progresses. But early on when I was just kind of like getting my bearings and, and writing and, and trying to like really kind of feeling out scripts, I felt like that was, that was instrumental because I really, one of my favorite things is putting an average person in one like very extreme situation. And more times than not, there's some kind of like mystery brewing, whether that's in an action, whether that's in a sci-fi way, whether that's in a horror way, whatever it is, I like mystery. Me too. And I didn't realize how much I loved mystery until, honestly, until I saw this. Because he, the way he articulates what mystery actually means is not like a murder mystery, right? right. That we all kind of sort of think about. It's, it's something totally different. It's structural. It's character. It's everything. So let's let's talk through what this mystery box idea is. So JJ opens his speech talking about his grandfather, whom he was very close to, who would always bring all these different contraptions home from whatever job he had, like radios and stuff like that. And they would sit there and they would take them apart together and kind of figure out how the inner trappings of these things worked. And JJ says to this day, he's obsessed with certain technologies or just how everyday things are put together thanks to his grandfather. Then out of this duffel bag, he pulls out a box and it's taped up and it has a giant question mark on it. And he says this about it. And there was this giant question mark, I love the design for what it's worth of this thing. And uh, I started thinking, why haven't I opened it? And I realized that I haven't opened it because it represents something important to me. It represents my grandfather. Am I allowed to cry at Ted? Because, no, I'm not going to cry. Uh, but, um, but the, <laughs> the thing is that, that it represents infinite possibility. It represents hope. It represents potential. And what I love about this box, and what I realized I sort of do in, in whatever it is that I do, is I I find myself drawn to infinite possibility and that sense of potential. And I realize that mystery is the catalyst for imagination. Now, it's not the most groundbreaking idea, but when I started to think that maybe there are times when mystery is more important than knowledge, I started getting interested in this. So what he says is basically, I realized that mystery is more important than knowledge. Let's talk about what that means. What does okay. that mean to you? Before I answer that, can I just bring up something about this? the masterclass yeah. of this TED talk and why yeah. it's important also to pitching, I think, is because oh. JJ personalized this and he brings in his grandfather. Totally. He talks about when he was younger and right off the bat, you're kind of like emotionally attached to it. You're like, oh. Yeah, wow. you're leaning in. Yeah, wait. Because he even talks to me, he's like, I might cry. <laughs> like, Am yeah. I allowed to uh, cry right. in a TED talk? It, there's and you're humor. like, oh no, he's going to cry. This is emotional to him. There's hu Yeah, exactly. So uh, mystery is more important than knowledge to me hanging on an idea and trying to figure out there, there's intrigue. You don't need to know, you don't need to be spoon fed facts. You need to be curious and open your mind. So you're, you're wondering what happens next. Mm -hmm. I feel like the mind wanders with mystery and it kind of stops working with facts. Yeah, I think that's right. It's make an audience ask questions rather than giving them exposition, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I call it spoon feeding. I hate spoon feeding an audience. And when I run my rooms and people are pitching ideas, I say, yes, that's great, but that feels like I'm spoon feeding the audience. I'm giving, I'm leading them by the hand way too much. And I, as an audience member, and I know other audience members love this too, they love to figure things out while they're watching the movie. 
I like to wonder or guess that these two characters have feelings for each other before I'm told that they have feelings for each other. Because otherwise, I feel it, I think it distances me from the movie if I'm being told everything. Mm -hmm. It's like someone dictating to you rather than bringing you into a story and pulling you into emotions. And I, I hate that. That's like, my, that's like my pet peeve when it comes to writing. So it's really, like you said, Josh, it's letting the audience figure things out and letting them feel smart. And I know a writer who feels like everything has to be explained very quickly or the audience will actually get lost mm. or the story will feel inadequate like there's holes in the story if things aren't explained very quickly particularly in tv where you have a you know a contained episode this writer has a sense of like i need everything to kind of close within this episode if we introduce a question it needs to close by the end of this episode whereas i am very much a slow burn kind of writer and that's both my i think my sort of like superpower in writing sometimes, but also definitely my fatal flaw because I can be too vague with things. I can carry things on a, like a bit too long than the audience really wants to. But there's a middle ground in there where I think is like sort of the sweet spot JJ is talking about. And as JJ talks a lot about in the TED Talk, the questions you're causing the audience to ask are the story. Like, that's what the story is. That's what's causing them to invest in your characters and in this two-hour-long or series-of-hour-long episodes that you're doing, or even 11 minutes. It doesn't even matter. You, you want your audience to want answers, which means you have to present them with questions. Mm -hmm. And the longer you take to give the answers to them, the longer they lean in. And I don't think that means, like, introduce a big mystery at the top of a movie and then answer it only in the final shot of your film. Right. Because that's as long as you can take to make it. And obviously that has probably worked and would be cool if done well, but that's not literally what it means to like take a long time to answer the questions you're setting up. It just means take your time. You don't have to set up a question in one scene and then the next scene answer it because you're so afraid the audience isn't going to be able to hang on between those transitions, right? Or even like two scenes, give it some breath. And this is something I think we as writers fight a lot for because I know that we get a lot of notes from people who do have this fear that audiences are going to be bored or confused and so they're not going to want to continue on to the next episode or the next scene. But I think, A, we have to find a middle ground because sometimes they're right. Sometimes we as writers do take too long to answer questions and audiences can get kind of jittery. But also like, trust your gut about it, too, because it is important for the audience to not know everything. Yeah. And I think we're afraid as writers to let the audiences linger. But uh, we have to fight this fear, I think. Yeah. And it's a delicate... It's It's... Not delicate, but it's really difficult to do everything to, to kind of like keep asking questions while answering questions. Yeah. That makes sense. It is. It's very hard. It, and I think watch a lot of movies. This helps give you a sense of what this question and answer means because like writers shouldn't think super deliberately about this. It should be kind of a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're writing a story and you find yourself just expositing a lot, then I think you need to take a step back and reflect on why you think the audience needs all these answers and can you parse it out? And sometimes I will literally do a beat sheet of like the entire mystery of the story or the, or like all of the important beats of, or like meat of the story. Yeah. And then I feel, I, I then like take those beats and like, okay, I'm going to reveal 
this one piece in act one and this one piece at the top of act two so that we're stringing the audience along and giving them a little extra carrot and then a little extra carrot. And that's just something you kind of feel along the way. And I think it's probably worth doing a breakdown of a J.J. Abrams maybe episode of television or something where we can do this exact breakdown of like what is a question and then when does he answer it situation mm-hmm. because I know it's hard to just talk sort of vaguely about this. But you can also do that do that on your own until we get to that episode. <laughs> but we should definitely sit there with an episode of Lost and kind of do this breakdown for it. I love that. Speaking of Lost, next JJ talks about Lost. He goes on to say that he and Damon Lindelof, who helped co-create Lost, had 11 and a half weeks to write the pilot, cast it, crew it, shoot it, cut it, post it, and then turn it into what ended up being a two-hour pilot. He said, quote unquote, there was no time to develop it. There was no time basically for people to tell them what they could and could not do. And I thought this was super interesting to me because Lost is notorious for basically being written like this across the entire show (laughs) to the point where at the end they had no idea what was actually happening because they they had questions that, w- that were unanswered. I guess, what are the biggest, craziest, awesomest ideas that writers have is kind of what their policy is, right? Like, send me the, the weird shit. Just pitch me the weirdest shit you can. We'll put it on the board. You want a black smoke monster? Great. Do we know what it is? <laughs> don't care right now because guess what? The characters don't know yet. So we don't need to know yet. We're going to figure that out. Like that's season two writer problem, right? And the fact that we don't know what the black smoke monster is is actually what makes it cool because we won't be able to give the audience or the characters any answers because we don't even know them. <laughs> so <laughs> That's part of what makes Lost so fun. I think you're tipping into without getting too far ahead, some of the criticism to the mystery box is mystery, 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 no payoff. And Right, okay. What's interesting about what you're saying now is I feel like if we were developing Lost, we would have to have answers to all of those things. If I was like, Tasha, there's a hatch, there's a monster, there's a freaking polar bear, uh, there's this other group of people that live there, there, you would need answers. But it seems like, and I, and I think this was kind of the famous story of Lost, like a lot of it was developed so quickly they didn't really need the answers Yeah. when it was happening. Or maybe they yeah. faked the answers. I, I'm not 100% sure. It's interesting. Uh, we, in the shows that, I've, that I'm writing, um, there's a lot of question and answers, a lot of mystery, right? And it's so tempting, and we definitely talk about this, to be like, let's just say, why does Lara Croft go into this temple? Like, what, like, why is this temple here? Why does it exist here of all places? And it's so tempting in the writer's room to be like, I don't know. And we're never going to have to answer that question. Like Mm -hmm. the audience is never going to have to know. So therefore, why do we have to know? But I always kind of, I force myself through that initial impulse and say, well, we have to have an answer for that. Even if we never show the audience that, we have to know. And the reason why is because of this exact problem, right? There is a sense of, I think an audience can tell if a writer has no fucking idea. And the way that the audience experiences it then when the audience, when they sense that the writer had no idea what was going on is, well, this, this is written. This is dumb. This is, this doesn't make any, it's ridiculous. It's, I'm no longer invested and, and vicariously living through going through this temple with this character because this temple is fake. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have rules set to it. It doesn't have any weight to it. I can tell that it was just made up and thrown in front of me. And when you watch 
bad movies, you can tell that that some of this stuff is not thought fully through because the writer knew they wouldn't have to explain it to you. But counterpoint to that, let's say I, I create a temple and I know exactly why it was here. Now, when we enter this temple, there's going to be stuff in the background. There's going to be Easter eggs. There's going to be a, a tone and, um, you know, wall art. And it's going to feel like a space because I know exactly why this place exists, even maybe down to when it was built and by whom. And even though you're not going to know that, you feel you feel that the world is built and you feel that it's full when you go through. So then I'm keeping you on this journey rather than pulling you out and making you remember that, oh, this is just a movie with sets. I love that. And you can definitely, yeah, you definitely, I'm sure most of the time you can feel why people did certain things. It's deliberate and it's good that you have the answers. I would expect nothing less from you, Tasha. Because I'm an overthinker? No, (laughs) because you're a good writer. (laughs) Thank you, Joshua. Uh, (laughs) All right. Then JJ goes on to say this, which I love. Part of the amazing thing for me is in the creative process, technology is like mind-blowingly inspiring to me. I realized that 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 blank page is a magic box. You know, it needs to be, you know, filled with something fantastic. I used to have the ordinary people script and I'd flip through it. The romance of the script was amazing to me. And when it would inspire me, I wanted to try to try and fill pages with the same kind of uh, spirit and, and, and thought and emotion that, that that script did. The blank page is a magic box. It needs to be filled with something fantastic. So what do you think that means to you? This kind of goes into what he was saying and, uh, you know, this idea of mystery is everywhere. And this is why mm-hmm. I love this this TED Talk is because you have a blank page and you can go anywhere on it now. What you're about to pour onto your screen or onto a page is is yet to be seen. And, and we have this blank canvas to create art. And here we go. And there's something really exciting. It's something terrifying about that because it's really hard to write, but there's also something beautiful about it because you can literally create something out of nothing. And that is yeah. really freaking cool. Yeah, you can go anywhere. It's a huge adventure. It's amazing. You can live in any space. Yeah, you can create it's awesome. any Writing's story. The best. Yeah. And this is what he says. He, he says at one point, you look at stories, you think, what are stories but mystery boxes? Stories are just a series of questions. And then he brings up Star Wars A New Hope, which is a really great example, where you meet this mysterious woman on a spaceship, and it raises the question of, oh, who is this woman? And then she sends a message to Luke saying, Obi-Wan Kenobi is my only hope. Well, who's Obi-Wan Kenobi? Now we have to figure that out. Now that's bringing me into the next section of the movie. And we're wondering, when are we going to meet him? him? Who is he? Why is he so important? And then we meet some old hermit guy. And holy shit, that old weirdo outcast guy is that mysterious princess woman's only hope? (laughs) How in the hell is that possible? Again, questions. I'm getting answers. I meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. I find out she's a princess. But that only creates more questions ultimately along the way. And I think that is a fantastic way of thinking about your story. And if it's too hard, because I always hesitate to say, form your stories by thinking about it this way from the beginning, because I just, my brain doesn't operate that way. But if you write your story, even if you beat it out in an outline or just sort of the, the most basic vomit draft you can find, then maybe retake a look at it and say, am I asking questions here? Am I bringing the audience along for a ride and raising questions to help bring them across my story? Yeah. Then JJ (laughs) says, probably my favorite bit of advice 
which is just a really good art articulation of what we've already kind of been talking about. So there's this thing with, uh, with, with mystery boxes that I, I started feeling like compelled. Then there's a the thing of like mystery in terms of, of imagination, the, in, 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 uh, the withholding of information, you know, um, doing that intentionally is much more uh, engaging, whether it's like the shark in Jaws. If Spielberg's you know, mechanical shark Bruce had worked, it would not have been remotely as scary. You would have seen it too much. In Alien, they never really show the alien, terrifying. Um, even in a movie like, uh, you know, like a romantic comedy, The Graduate, they're having that date, remember, and they're in the car and, and, and it's loud and so they put the top up and they're in there. You don't hear anything they're saying. You, you can't hear a word, but it's the most romantic date ever and you love it because you don't hear it. So. Josh, turning it back to you, yeah, yeah, he yeah. says mystery is withholding information. How do you feel like you institute this in your own writing, I guess? Well, you know I love a good MacGuffin. Yes. I actually don't think I do enough mystery in my own writing. As a matter of fact, after I rewatched this, I kind of went back into a spec I'm working on and reconfigured a few scenes to drag out mystery and try to have a few more questions after each scene because I was like, oh, there's, there's not enough mystery. So I think within my own writing, I always try to have mysteries here and there. And by the way, again, when I say mysteries, I'm not meaning, oh my God, here's the rabbit's foot from MI3. Sometimes it's just a mystery of a relationship and some yeah. characters acting a little funny towards another character. And so you just want to, you want to be curious about the character or the situation or the plot or whatever it is. Yeah. I think that's a great example and a great reminder because I was just talk, uh, like breaking a scene recently or sequence of scenes where two characters have like an unspoken thing between them that they, it's a problem that they really need to talk about. Mm. And there's a version that came to my head that was like, oh, they, they talk about it immediately in the first beat that they're together. And I was like, yeah, but that gets out all the juice right away. So how about I create three different beats where... They're together one time. And the first time you see them together, the character says, hey, you want to talk about that thing? And the other guy's like, no, I'm mm. good. Let's, let's just do what we got to do. But there's unspoken stuff boiling. So that's a question like, oh, shit. When are they going to talk about this? And how is that going to go? And then the second beat kind of dials that up a little bit more. You can tell that like rage is boiling. This is not going to go well when it finally does get talked about. But that makes you only want to lean in more and wait for that third beat which, and usually three beats are kind of the, the, way to, the way to do this, just structurally. Three is the magic key. And then the third beat, it finally explodes. But they've been keeping it in for three beats. And it, again, easily could have been we give it in one beat. But I think that holding it back for two extra beats really makes the audience go, oh, God, oh, God, I'm bracing for it. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm asking questions. How is it going to go? And that's just a character thing. It's, yeah. it's not big, big MacGuffin stuff. So you can do it at every level. You're right. Yeah. Writing's fun. It this is fun. This makes me remember that writing is fun. It, it is fun. I love when they're, I mean, I love a good MacGuffin too. Oh, there's a key. There's a backpack. There's some, something, something. I, I just, yeah. if I could put that in every single one of my scripts, which I pretty much do, I will always do that. Yeah. I'm struggling right now with, with something that's, that's basically a mystery box situation where something opens with a mystery. Uh, it's, a, it's an episode of television that opens with a mystery. There are like creatures in the world that are acting strange, right? Mm. And you're like, why? I'm in. And I got notes recently from a writer friend and they were like, well, that's just confusing. Can you pay that off sooner? And I was like, I don't want to. Yeah. Because 
I think everyone knows that kind of, it's almost a, a cliche. It's like a shorthand. Oh, shit. Rats are running off a, a ship. That means something's bad. A dog is barking at nothing. That means something is bad. What does that mean? And Conjuring is a fantastic example. In the opening of that movie, as the family is moving into the house, the dog starts barking. Weird shit doesn't actually start happening for quite a while after that. But that's enough for the audience to be like, oh, what is up? I'm going to lean in until I figure that out. That becomes a question. So for me, I don't like I don't like paying stuff off right away. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just don't. But to each their own. Can I just say that I love animals being spooked in movies? Me too. It's just the best. Every it's time, such a like, great shorthand. You could just get away with anything. Oh man, where are those <laughs> where are those birds flying to? Yeah, they're all migrating at the same time. Yeah, something's happening. Yep. <laughs> It's going to take 25 pages for you to find out, but now you're curious. Yeah, I love it. I'm taking us into the final awesome point that JJ makes, which is about how you trick the audience into caring about your movie without them even realizing it, basically. Whoa. And that's through character investment. And his argument is the most iconic movies that we can think of, when we pitch them back to someone, we maybe pitch that big iconic fight scene or that super memorable funny moment that's kind of what we think of when we want to tell someone about why they should go see this movie yeah but for example when i think of indiana jones the first thing that comes to mind is the tank fight in last crusade it was just i don't know why Mm -hmm. but that to me is so iconic but really the reason i love that movie is because it's about a son repairing his relationship with his estranged father. That's ultimately why I cared so much about that movie and why every other movie falls short. Wow. And then he goes on to talk about E.T., right? E.T. is about an alien who meets a kid, but it's not. It's about divorce. It's about a kid who can't find his own way after divorce. And that's why you emotionally connect to Elliot and E.T. Die Hard, huge just action movie you can think of. But it's about a man getting a divorce. There's a half hour of just setup in that first act of investing in Bruce Willis's character before you even get into the iconic actions of bare feet across glass and crawling through the air vents, right? Even though that's my, that might be what you pitch when you tell someone, go, you got to see Die Hard. Yeah. And then he brings up Jaws, which I haven't rewatched Jaws in a long time. But he he really honed in on how it's a movie about masculinity and how... It's about masculinity being challenged by coming into this new town. And he actually played two scenes when he was doing his TED Talk. The first was the opening of Jaws, which is, I think, just so iconic at this point, which is that female swimmer who gets pulled repeatedly down into the water and, and ultimately killed. Mm-hmm. And if you go, even if you go to Universal, it's, that's like the image that's on there on their board when they're like advertising Jaws. But the scene that he really remembers attaching to and that really made him think this movie was special was a quiet moment between Roy Schneider and the son um, where the son's copying him at dinner and there's a sense of this this boy is is looking to me to know how to lead his life and to be a man and he asks for a kiss from his son because he really needs it in that yeah. moment. And that's super important because... Because of all the things we just said. I don't know. I'm going to shut up because I've talked a lot. Josh, go. <laughs> no, no, no. I, it's, it is funny because I don't even remember that scene. It wasn't until I watched the TED Talk and I was like, oh, yeah, that one scene does exist. So I, I, I did think about it. I was like, is, 
I mean, you need it. You need character, obviously. Yeah. You need character. But in a movie like Jaws, for me, I don't think of that moment. And I don't know even know if I care about that moment, to be totally honest. I bet you did subconsciously. Yeah, subconsciously, though. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of what we're, we're talking about here, is yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. affect the audience in a way they don't even realize it, right? And right. this can be really tough, especially when you're getting notes from executives. So like, again, stay strong. Not that your movie should be boring and just be a series of dinner scenes, especially if you're writing an action movie or an adventure movie or something that's a bit more high adrenaline and thrillery, but these scenes are still key and like allowing these, what we call downbeats or these quiet moments of reflection that allow for theme do feel very important. And I definitely know writers who are kind of allergic to scenes where characters are doing nothing but talking. And I get it. I get that you are afraid the audience will be bored and it's possible they will be, but that could also become the crux of your movie and should be if it's well executed. And also if it's sort of juxtaposed with something super exciting before that and then super exciting after that, because just taking someone on an adrenaline ride for two hours is not necessarily what they actually want, even Mm -hmm. though they think they want it, right? They need to be kind of brought down and then brought back up again. And so that that bring down moment, that downbeat, in other words, is where you can inject a lot of character, inject a lot of theme, and they may forget it as soon as they move on to the next action beat, but you have actually instilled or inceptioned them with the meaning behind what they're actually watching. I agree. That's true. You need it. I love it. I love the mystery box. It's, 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 so, it's so valuable. Can we quickly chat about kind of how it's been over time kind of been reversed and people don't like the mystery box so much anymore? I would love to talk about that. Why the hell do people not like the mystery box? I think what happened with JJ is he got so big that he was under a microscope and everyone was analyzing his movies. And I think Lost might have let people down and they were like, well, this wasn't the payoff that I wanted. And it was very Mm -hmm. clear that they were trying to figure some things out on the fly eventually. Mm -hmm. I've read articles and getting ready for this, I read some articles and people just hated this idea of creating mystery because I think, I, I don't think people like JJ and some of his like story decisions and maybe felt like it was a little cliche, which Mm -hmm. I disagree with, by the way. I'm just Mm -hmm. very clear. I'm just repeating what was said in a couple of these articles. I don't know, man. It's interesting because there's like that quote in The Dark Knight where it's like, um, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what happened with JJ and his mystery box. When it came out, everyone was like, hell yes. Yes, this makes Mm -hmm. sense. This man makes amazing things, but then over time, they just stopped appreciating it. I will say this, just to go on, one more thing. Using Mm -hmm. The Force Awakens as another example. Mm -hmm. In The Force Awakens, there were a lot of questions that were brought up. Mm -hmm. And then by the third movie, The Rise of Skywalker, some might say those questions weren't properly answered and in fact kind of hurt the Star Wars franchise because it was just, he did an amazing job of bringing back Star Wars, asking new questions. But then by the third one, it was like, uh-oh, we got to just, you know, patch things up and 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 we're bringing back Palpatine and we're doing yeah. this. And, they, you know, kind of contradicted the second in that trilogy. Yeah. So I think that's the the argument against the mystery box is, is not having the answers. Sometimes the mystery is cooler. But does that, does that just highlight a flaw that J.J. Abrams has that he maybe his fatal flaw is he doesn't know how to answer his own amazing questions and that's just 
an issue he needs to figure out himself in his own writing. Because, yes, I, I mean, and also the like a follow up question is, do you think this blowback against the mystery box came specifically because of Lost and the finale, which was very problematic? Well, it's weird because a lot of the articles that I read with the blowback were from like a little post Star Warsy. Mm. So it took like 10 years for people to really... So they forgave him for Lost. Like maybe this was just a one-off. Maybe they just fucked maybe. up and lost. But then when they saw the trilogy that is the new Star Wars, they're like, oh no, this is a pattern. Maybe. Yeah. And by the way, I've read JJ's scripts. He's an amazing writer. Amazing. He's, he's, am- am- he's amazing. He's amazing. But that also doesn't mean he doesn't maybe have this as a tiny flaw that he has the same way. Not to put myself anywhere in the realm of J.J. Abrams. Same way that mine is being vague, overly vague on things, because I like the slow burn. Maybe his is just not answering the question satisfactory. But I would have to say after Force Awakens, everyone was fucking in. Yeah, Because of the questions, you're like, who is she? Why is this happening? All of those things. And it's the questions are so good that he creates. Yeah. That when the answers aren't so, so good, you just create a problem for yourself. And... That's that's just what's so hard about writing, and you never know what answer is going to appeal to people and what like it's a I mean it's a perfectly fine answer it's just not the one we we happen to want. Sure. In conclusion, yes, I'm still all in on the mystery box. I feel like it was misunderstood. I feel like he came in trying to talk about the joys of mystery. You go into a theater, there's mystery. There's there's uh, your computer, you're, start, you're, you're adventuring on this road that is unforeseen and you don't know what's going on. That's where I thought he was. He was coming from the right place. Yeah. And my, my biggest takeaway from the JJ stuff in this TED Talk was that the audience experience of a film is a huge part of the actual writing process. And I think sometimes we forget that bit of it, that people have to go and watch our movies, right? We think we're just going to write the thing and people are going to go watch and enjoy the thing that I have written. But I think what I learned from J.J. Abrams in this speech is to pay attention to the way audiences experience of watching your movie or TV show functions. Mm. And I used to kind of consider that selling out a little bit when you're, think- when you're thinking of audience instead of just writing your craft and writing your script and being true to who you are. And all of that is great. But now I realize that after being a professional screenwriter for a while, that that's actually being able to understand the experience of, of an audience and write to that in certain ways, actually what makes you a good writer. Because the people who forget it are when you're an audience and you get bored or you get confused or you think something feels overwritten, like you, you're feeling that. So oh, um, yeah. that, that's me. that to me was my big takeaway from everything. All I want to do is sell out. That's it. <laughs> Just let me sell out, AMBTB. <laughs> let me sell out to anyone. <laughs> All right, quote of the day. When there's an authentic mystery, as opposed to just a question being asked, that's what makes you lean forward. J.J. Abrams. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram and Threads or Tasha 3.0 on Twitter. I'm Joshua Hallman, Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.